1: What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about light games, talking about filler games, talking about games that don't take a great deal of mental uh, effort to accomplish, but still have a great time. We're talking to Carla Cott from Weird Draft Games. Carla, welcome back to the show.
2: I am so excited to be back. I
1: am so glad that you're here. This is something, you know, light games are, there. there's so many, right? And I feel like there's people that are, trying to design light games, or maybe should be designing light games. Maybe they're working on a really deep game right now. It's like, yeah, that probably needs to be a lighter game. And so I'm excited to kind of hear you know, your thoughts and ideas on how to lighten a game, both the how to you know make it lighter, but also just to start from scratch. But uh, before we get into that, tell people who you are, how you got into game design, all that kind of thing.
2: Okay, uh, I am Carla Kopp. I'm Weird Draft Games. Um, we have published games such as Stellar Leap and Fire in the Library and... Um, our next one is Dreams of Tomorrow, which is coming to Kickstarter, or it should be on by the time you listen to this. Um, I got into games, um, well, I got into designing games by, um, just going to a panel about how to design a game, and I was told it was super easy, and I believed them, (laughs) and so I got, like, pretty addicted to this whole designing games thing, until I realized just the amount of work that it is, um... It is super easy to get into designing games, but it is a lot of work to actually finish a game or get it to like a point where you can like say that it's like really great and awesome.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's amazing how many hobbies are like that, right? Where it's it's easy to get in. Like You can go buy the golf clubs. You can buy the shoes. You can pay some green fees. But that doesn't mean you can hit a golf ball to save your life. You know, <laughs> the same thing with the game yeah. design. You can get a napkin and a pen and start working on some games. But, yeah, actually making a good game or even just finishing a bad game is such a difficult task. But I'm excited to talk about light games cuz maybe it's a little bit easier to finish a light game. I feel like there's there's less going on, so maybe that's a good place for newer designers to start. But before we even get into it, let's talk about what is a light game. Like what is your definition of light?
2: So, I'd say that the game has to play under uh, 60 minutes, the turns are short, you're not like thinking all that much, maybe there's a touch of luck involved. Um, but like it's not like a big brain burner, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. And what are what are maybe some of the other boundaries uh, for these games where, you know, it's not a hard and fast rule necessarily. It's not super black and white, but but just in general, you might say, okay, if a game goes beyond this line, beyond this boundary, it's no longer really in the light game space. What are some of those other boundaries?
2: I'd say that typically the game should cost like no more than about $30. Um, there's a ton of light games that are in like the $15 to $20 range.
1: Yeah, for sure. And like, what about components? Like should light games not have a ton of components or something like that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that, where, like, you don't want a ton of components, but also not a ton of different components. Like, there's usually, like, there's cards, or there's dice, or you might have, like, maybe two or three kinds of components, but you don't have ten different components. Like, you might have, like, chits or something, but you don't have ten different kinds of chits. Like, it's really easy to take in, like, all the differences between things and to list, like, every different kind of component.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I also think the rulebook should not be very long, right? Because you could have a game with hardly any components but still have a 40-page rulebook. And so I think also just uh, quick rules, quick to teach, quick to learn. Uh, Is that something that you really strive for with your games and your company?
2: Oh, yeah. like I really want the first game to go really well because I think if you can't like have the first game where the people are learning and trying to enjoy the game, if that game doesn't go well, they probably won't pick up the game again. So you want to make it as easy as possible for the players to actually learn how to play.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think that actually leads into why people play these games is because they're easy to learn, because they're easy to get to the table. But why else are some? Uh, what are what are some other reasons why people love light games?
2: So one reason I like light games is that I don't get a lot of time to game, but I like to play lots of different games. Yeah. So if there's a heavy game. And I have maybe four hours. I might only get to that one heavy game. But with four hours, I could easily play like four or maybe even six different light games if I know how to play them.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. That happened to me over the summer. I was with some friends, and we had about three hours to play some games. And my friend, he's got a huge wall of games. And said, well, what do you want to play? And there, were, there was like a really big, heavy game. I was like, oh, I want to play that. Or we could play these three other games in the same amount of time. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. let, me, let me play these new games I haven't played before. Let's play three of those as opposed to just one of the other one. And I think that's, that's a lot of people, whether you have kids or you know, just responsibilities and life in general. It, it's, it's nice to just be able to pull a game out, play it in 20 minutes, learn the rules, play it you know, quickly and all that kind of thing. But why? let's go on the other side. Why should designers design light games?
2: So my favorite part about designing light games is that I can get somebody to sit down and maybe they have two hours at night to like help me out and play test. We can play test once in like maybe half an hour. I can get some feedback. We can play test again. I could like iterate even like if I have a pen and I'm willing to like write on my cards, I can change things. We can play test again. Like in two hours, you could easily play test a half an hour game. Maybe even three times if you make sure the the, the setup is like really quick and you can iterate. It is so much faster to get a really great light game than it is to get a heavy game because like with a heavy game, one like okay, say it takes you know two to three hours just to play. So you have to find people that are willing to learn and play this two to three hour game, which, you know, turns into, like, if they're just learning, it could end up to be, like, a, a three hour game. But then you want to talk about it, you want to see what they felt like, you want to ask questions during it, because, like, you can't just play the game. You have to, like, get all the feedback and find out all the information. So, like, maybe you talk about that game for, like, another hour, and, like, how many people are really going to, like, dedicate four hours to helping you in one day to play through this entire, like, heavy game. Like, it gets really hard. And then, like, okay, so say that they don't have that amount of time. You can play, like, the first half of the game, but then what? Like, you get really good at the first half of the game, and the second half is just, like, it's just worse. Um, because like you have to play test the whole game through, but if you only, if you focus on making like the first half good, the second half is just, it's not going to fit. It's going to be weird.
1: Yeah, for sure. This is something I was talking to a designer just a couple weeks ago and uh, they've got a three hour game and that's what they're going for. They're aiming at that niche of people that love the, you know, the, the food chain magnate, the Arkham horror lovers of the world, the people that want to sit down and play a three hour game that they, they enjoy that. that. you know, so that's what they're aiming at. But they were running into this issue, like especially if you go to like an Unpub or a Protospiel. Like, you don't even have that much time at the table, necessarily. You know, Even if you go to a, a playtesting event. And so they were really struggling with, like, well, how do we get people to playtest this three-hour game? And so one thing I told them about, I was like, hey, well, figure out where the middle is, and then just start at the middle, right? And so like maybe take a picture of a game you know, halfway through and go, okay, this is how many resources each player had, this is how much money, this is where they were on the scoring track, whatever. And then just find out where that middle is, and then when you – have another playtest, just start from the middle and go from there. Well, that's, that's not the easiest thing in the world, right? And you could also, <laughs> your numbers could be messed up and you know, it's just a, a harder uh, process. But then also, if you're thinking about you know, playtesting games, I don't know about you, but I know my own games. Every time I've sat down and thought, okay, I'm trying to make an hour game, the first handful of play last two hours. Like it's always double of what I'm going for. You know, I've got too much in there, there's too many cards, there's too many actions, all that stuff. And so if you sit down and make a two hour game, well, it's probably a four hour game. And so it's, it's can be really frustrating as well. And I guess you better have a lot of beer and pizza to pay your, uh, your friends <laughs> and playtesters. testers. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a really uh, good point. And now as far as uh, your games, why, why does, why does weird giraffe, like give me uh, your personal philosophy, your company's philosophy about why uh, lighter games or filler games. Actually, let's, let's, Over there, just for a second. Is a filler game the same as a light game? Would you say that's the same thing?
2: I would say it's about the same thing. Um, I've never played a filler game that I wouldn't also classify as a light game. Um, Like, are there any heavy games that only take 15 minutes to play? (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, maybe you might be able to argue some social deduction games have some heaviness, some complexity, but not because of the game, but because the, your friends are weird, or because <laughs> you know, what I mean, like you got complex uh, relationships. You might say so. Maybe that, but yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think a filler game and a light game are pretty much uh, synonymous. So let me go back to my question: Why does Weird Giraffe specialize in these style games?
2: So. One, I really like designing, like and iterating really fast, so it helps on that aspect. But I also want to be family friendly. Like, I really want to be like the the publisher that makes these games that you can play with your family, that you can play with people that might not be all that interested in games or know a lot of games. Like, I want you to be able to take one a weird draft game and to be like, hey, new coworker, let's get to know each other. Here's a board game you might or might not have played board games before but let's let's just start playing and I want it to be easy enough for those players that haven't maybe played more than like Splendor or um, Century Spice Road to be actually be able to like jump in and be like, oh, okay, I'm not good at this, but I kind of understand what's going on and maybe by the end of it like they actually have fun and they can enjoy it.
1: Yeah, for sure, and like you said, it hopefully brings them into the hobby. These are very, very often gateway games. You know, Ticket to Ride and, and Settlers of Catan. These are pretty light games, and they help bring. They have helped to bring millions and millions of people into the hobby. So I feel like a lot of times, as, as gamers, as hobby gamers, we kind of look down our nose, you know, at games like, oh, well, you like Settlers of Catan, but no, like this game was instrumental in the industry being what it is today. And so I feel like uh, it's easy to be snooty about light games, <laughs> but uh, but at the same time, they have a very, very pivotal place in the industry and then going back to family games, right? If I'm playing with my 10 year old, right? I-, I need a lighter game just cause she's not you know, cognitively ready for the great Western trail or you know, <laughs> things like that.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, and so I feel like that's another really good reason why a designer should, should look more at designing uh, light games and filler games. Uh, but let's also talk about the the things you learn, you know, as a designer, the, the experiences you get from designing light games. So tell me about your personal experience and, and kind of how you've grown, just based on all the light games that you've been working on.
2: Okay, um, well, first off, like how I got into light games was um, so my first game that I designed it was a twenty-five card game. Um, I limited myself to 25 cards because I just, I wanted that space to be small. I wanted me to be able to like fill, uh, well, like, um, the thing about 25 cards is that if you take out one, it, you can, um, pass out equal numbers of cards to, uh, two to six players except for five. But for five players, um, you just pass out all the cards. It's five, uh, cards each. Mm -hmm. So it made that really easy, but it also limited me, like, I couldn't make 40 cards I didn't have to make 40 cards like that as a new designer I only had to make 25 which meant that I could actually finish the game and be able to play test it because like whenever you start uh, designing games you're like oh, okay when do I actually put it in front of somebody do I just add every idea I have do I do all the things and Like, I don't know how I decided on 25, but I'm really glad that I limited myself, because um, my next game was Stellar Leap, and that one, it started off crazy. Like, that one was a 4X game, and I was just, it's a space game, and I was just listing off, like, okay, what are all the things that are in space? What kind of resources (laughs) could there be? Well, there's water, and fuel, and all these things. There's probably gold, and minerals, and... um, initially i was trying to like look at the cards and try to put all the resources out equally and i tried that and i was like whoa (laughs) if i wanted this to happen so that every resource was available for every game like the number of cards i would have to have and like the probabilities and stuff and like what happens if it's all water all the time and then like Do you have to have all these rules on what to do when there's not enough different resources? It was just, like, way overly complicated. And I was like, okay, let's limit myself. Four resources is a lot of different resource types. So let's limit it to that. And, like, when I did that, when I limited it, I didn't need as many cards. Like, it just shrunk the number of cards down, like, I think, like, to get eight different resources... With three resources on a planet, with one major resource, like, you needed, like, over a hundred cards to get, like, the proper distribution. But, like, only four, you know, you needed a whole lot less. So, like, I learned from there. Um, Stellar Leap, it was about an hour or so to play for uh, new players. And going from that game to Fire in the Library, which started off as, like, a 15-20 minute game, I just learned how fast it was to iterate like it is just so much easier to like play and iterate and play and iterate over and over again versus stellar leap where if i was lucky i got in two play tests a night for like each group and there's also like the organizing of people that go to a place and like trying to compensate people like buying them beer and pizza or whatever it is that they want like it's just so much easier with a light game So while I was designing these games, I also learned that I love reference cards. Mm. I love reference cards so much, (laughs) um, especially in designing, okay? Uh, So um, one of my games that I haven't actually published yet, um, I started doing this with where I would make a reference card with a version on it. And I would do this instead of actually making a rules document because making a reference card with all the things a player can do, and just handing it out to people, okay, everyone knows what they can do right now, and I didn't have to like put in all the time and effort to update the rules document, play a game, and realize, oh yeah, that was all wrong. I'm going to try it all out again. So making those reference cards, like, well, they were helpful for me because I knew what I was doing. Like I had a version of all the things that I had tried. Um, but also just it lowers that whole, like, learning curve so much. Like, getting new players to, like, playtest a new version of your game when, like, the things that have changed are, like, so small and, like, compared to uh, the um, version before. it. Like, oh, yeah, this costs three and four. Or you get two of this instead of one. Like Like, when you're doing all that balancing, like, it's hard for me to remember that so I can't expect somebody that's played a different version of the game to like even try to remember that. So that was like fantastic for actually playtesting.
1: Yeah, for sure. I want to talk more about some things you've learned as far as like how to lighten a game in just a minute. But going back to what we we're talking about with with why new designers should to do, should do more light games. Uh, you you brought up some really good points I want to dig into. And I love that you ran into the whole like, I want to have all the resources I can have. Because I ran into the same thing. Like my own space game is like, all right, food and fuel and water and minerals. I was like, huh, I'm going to have nine resources. It's like, this is way too much. And so I thought, hmm. Trade goods. There we go. I'll just like combine all of them together into one thing called trade goods, and that like super lightened up the game and made it so much easier to track and, and to know. You know, okay, I need this many to build this and all that kind of thing. Uh, but one thing I, I really think that, that light games are good for, especially as new designers. Because it's, it's something that really frustrates me. With when I talk to new designers, and I'm like, "Hey, what kind of game are you working on?" And they say, "I'm building a, I'm, I'm making a thousand-card deck builder." It's like you're never gonna finish. <laughs> cool. Good luck. You know, it's just, it's just. I don't know why anybody would want to design a deck builder as their first game. Like, there's just so much going on. Like, no, go, <laughs> go find Button Shy. Go find uh, the Gin Cant contest. Like, go find some of these contests that have these awesome constraints that say, "Hey, you have to use 18 cards." Right, you you have to use uh, 25 cards and one die. Like, go find these these game contests that put constraints on you to force you to figure out design challenges and you know and overcome these obstacles. Because so often early on, when I had a problem, I would just throw more stuff at it. I'd be like, oh, we'll just add more components, we'll just add more cards, we'll just add more actions, and that made every game worse. And so I feel like <laughs> new designers just learning how to lighten a game based on the constraints, like you were saying with with your 25 card game or. You know, with, with button shy contest. and like you get 18 cards. That's it, no more, no no less. And you have to figure out everything around it. It's so good uh, because it's almost like a drill. It's like it's like a sport, right? Everything in my head goes back to football. You know. You don't, you don't just like start playing games. Like, no, you go to practice and you learn how to hold the ball. You learn how to catch the ball. You learn how to throw. You learn how to block. You learn how to do all the fundamental things. And you do them in, in drill forms. And so you have, here's your 10-yard uh, spe- amount of space, and you have to do the drill inside this space, and, and we're trying to learn one thing. And I feel like more designers need to do that kind of stuff in the game design world. It's so easy to get into, and you can just start designing. A, you, know, you can start designing Twilight Imperium, you know, the next edition, if you want to, and have an eight-hour you know, game but you learn so much from from little things from drills. What are some other drills you might suggest that new designers could could do, you know, ways to put constraints on their design, ways to, you know, try to figure things out. What are some drills you would would say, "Hey, if you're new to this thing, do this as you learn and then grow and then get better."
2: So, I really suggest like finding a game that you know and you love, like maybe Settlers, maybe like some other game that you like and try making an expansion to it. Like even just a micro expansion, maybe like six or 10 cards. And I think it's really helpful because you have the base game, which is, you know, balanced and then you're just adding to it and you have to learn how to like balance your own cards against something that's equally balanced. Like, and you only have so many cards to work with, like the constraints are good. I mean, even go like 20 cards or something. Um, Don't go anything crazy, but see if you can add value, to a game like add something different while still playing in the same sphere like like trying to make it so it's not like super overpowered or underpowered like make it worthwhile but it's not a whole new game you're just adding to what's already there i think that's really helpful that's actually how i got started with design was like i would i went to Agricola and at the time i either didn't know about the the six-player expansion or it wasn't out and i was like okay Well, I have a lot of friends, and we all want to play Agricola, so let's figure out how to balance this game with uh, the base components plus, you know, my own, and actually make it work. Like, make the number of locations more, add in more cards, do something to make some other game that's already good. Add more players, add, like, something that you think of, of yourself, add a different mechanic.
1: Yeah, for sure. And what I love about this is you already know that base game works. It already it's good. Well, it's, it's good enough to be published. It's good enough for people to buy it, you know. And, and you know it's for the most part balanced. You don't have to worry about all the other stuff that goes along with it. You can just design the little mini expansion. And then it, you know, the rest of the game's already balanced. So now you just have to balance six cards or 10 cards or 20 cards, whatever. And that makes it so much easier than trying to figure out or balance some giant game.
2: And um, I know you brought up contests before, and one of the contests I really, really love is the Cardboard Edison contest, yeah, definitely. where it doesn't have the restrictions, but it does. Um, you do have to make a video, and you have to have a rules document, and then if you've never made rules, you know, that's hard. It gets you to do it. It adds a deadline, because deadlines are amazing for actually forcing people <laughs> to do things. Yep. But one of the most important things about this contest is that there's a panel of judges, that will give you feedback on your game. Yep. And it's generally really good feedback. And if it's not that great of feedback, it's because you might not you know, know how to write rules. And that will tell you, like, if all the judges played your game wrong, well, maybe you should go back to the drawing board on how you, you did the rules.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's definitely one of my favorite uh, contests of the year. I'm already right now thinking about okay, what game do I want to design for you know January when the when the deadline hits. And uh, yeah, it's it's so great. You get that deadline. You, you get accountability through that. You get people looking at your game. You know if you if you're able to move on to the next level, you have publishers maybe looking at your game. And so it just it's a really cool uh, way to do things. And like we're talking about with light games if you design a light game, it's easier to finish. And so it's easier to be able to submit your game and be able to do the video and the rule book and all that kind of thing. Uh, any other drills? Any other things that you would suggest, maybe in the realm of light games, um, for people to, to kind of figure out how to get better, how to get more experience?
2: Uh, maybe take like another light like, game, like, like maybe zombie dice or something. Like and instead of a dice version of it, make a card version yeah. of it. Or, you know, if it's a card game, make a dice version of it. Like you have some, like, base material to start off with, but just transform it into another different kind of medium. And dice are usually, like, pretty easy. Like, you just, like, if you have some certain actions, you put the actions on dice, and that's how it's different. And so, like, you're still working in that sphere where, like, you know how the the regular game works, you've played it a lot, you know it a lot, but you're changing it, and you're working in some sort of constraint. Like... And make sure not to, like, go crazy. Like, make it like, oh, this is the super hard version of Katan, but with dice. And it's like, okay, no, that's not what I'm suggesting. Like, get the idea of the game, but just make it simpler.
1: Yeah, for sure. Also, one thing I, I did early on was just retheme games. You know, if there's a game I, I like, I was like, ah, oh, I like this, I just wish it was with zombies. I wish it was in space. Just retheme it, right, mm-hmm. and have some fun. And it's not something that's ever going to get published, probably, and it's, you know, completely uh, just a knockoff, but that's okay, because you're learning, you're learning how to bring theme out in a different way, uh, how to change some things to, to make it more the space theme as opposed to the zombies, whatever it is, I think that's another really cool way uh, to do things as well. Now, getting back into how. What are some other ways that you've learned about how to lighten a game? So maybe you you know, maybe you want your game to be sixty minutes and right now it's ninety. Or maybe, you know, you've you <laughs> got ten things going on and you want seven. Like what are some ways you found to kind of limit actions or limit the cognitive needs of a game, so to speak, to make the game lighter?
2: Okay, so about the length of time. Okay, so some games, like, there's seven rounds. And when I them, 'em, I'm like Why is it seven rounds? Mm. Is that just an arbitrary number that was chosen? Like, did they really need this game to be two hours? Um, So you have to think about things like that. Like, if you have a four-round game, make it three and see if that makes any difference. Like, Because you want players to be really excited, but you don't want them to get bored of the game. Like, once they're bored, the game has gone on too long. So if you have a game where people are, like, maybe going on their phones during, like, the last round cut off the last round and see how it plays differently. Like, and see, like, you might have to balance things. But, you know, shorter games are pretty appealing to people. Like, you know, you don't have to bore someone. Get to that point before they're bored in the game. So then they're like, oh, okay, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to play again. And since you're starting a whole new game, it's more, more interesting that way.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, you always want to leave people wanting more. Right, this is in my i my again my football brain the Barry Sanders effect. Right, Barry Sanders retired from football and he still had at least two, maybe three good seasons left in him. Now, part of that's because he's with the Detroit Lions and it is what it is. But like people really remember how great he was because he never faded. He never really like fell off, so to speak. He he was always great and he retired great. And you want your game to end while it's great, as opposed to you know that last that seventh round like you're talking about. It's like man, this should have gone five. Uh, I wish I wish this game would have ended thirty minutes ago because people aren't going to play it again. Like you, you've left them, you, you've let them fade, you know, fade out, so to speak. <laughs> and so another thing I, I've found that works really well, and I've seen a lot of. Uh, Much better designers than me do this. Is instead of having rounds, you have uh, in-game triggers, and this is something I'm working on right now with my space Mm -hmm. game. There are three different ways to end the game, and so you might have a player that just like speed rushes trying to end the game a certain way, right? And so instead of like everybody just kind of sitting around waiting, it's like, oh no, he he's about to end the game, and I'm losing, and so I got to figure out how to stop him, and then I need to you know try to do this other trigger to end the game, and so it creates these really cool uh, this cool tension and and, you know different uh, actions and opportunities, and and it's not just like okay, I guess we'll just sit here and wait for the game to end. It's like, no, no, we're actively trying to mm-hmm. end the game. And so that's a, maybe another way to kind of lighten things up and, and for the game not to overstay its welcome.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if players can end the game when they want to. That's fantastic because you'll never get that player that's like super bored because they'll just end the game.
1: <laughs> that's true. That's true. I've got a friend that's like that where her goal is not to win. Her goal is to is to make her husband lose first of all. And then, second of all, just to do some fun stuff. You know, just do cool stuff. And so I've seen her. Uh, we've played Scythe. We've played lots of different games where there's triggers. And, and she's look. she'll look at the board and go, hmm, I know I'm losing, but this next action is going to be really cool and it's going to give me my last star or my last, you know, in-game trigger. And so I'm going to do that. And we'll just see who wins. It's like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> and so you have people like that. They're like, yep, we're into the game now. I'm like, all right, cool. Uh, and it's just very interesting. Now, what are some other ways to lighten
2: a game? So- Okay, if you have a certain set of actions that you can do, and you can do them in any order, something really easy to make it, like, so much lighter is to just say that they go in an order. You have to do one, then two, then three. So this means that the players don't have to think about, like, the ideal path. Like, if they do the third action first instead of the second, like, like just not having to think about, like, the entire order of your turn and, like, all the different possibilities of that. You know, if you have to do one first, then you're just like, okay, I'm doing this, and then I do that, and then I do that, and then I'm done, yep. because that's how the game works.
1: Yeah, for sure, Given the, the players more of a linear structure. I think this is really good with family games, too, especially with kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hey, you do A, you do B, you do C. Okay, cool, and it's very easy for the people for people to understand. I think another good way to do things is if you can make it where players only do one, maybe two things on a turn, as opposed to four or five. Like just kind of limit the number of things they can do. One, it speeds up turns, and so you know people feel like they're going Mm -hmm. more often, and so it kind of keeps them engaged. But also, it's less to think about. You don't have to go, okay, first I'm going to do this and that, second and third, and then I think fourth I'm going to do. Like it's just a lot to think about. And if you have a lot of things going on, and so just do one thing. Like, okay, I'm gonna do this. And then when it gets back around, I'm going to try to do this. And I think that's uh, another way to lighten things up.
2: Yeah, and then you also never feel bad. Because, mm. like, I mean, we've all played those games where it's like, okay, I'm doing these five things on my turn. And then when my turn's over, I'm like, oh, instead of that third thing, I wanted to do this other thing. Mm-hmm. But I forgot because I was thinking about five different things. And thinking about that many things is kind of hard to remember all, like... Yep exactly how I wanted to do them so yeah like that's another way to like just if the player only has to do one or two things they'll never like really feel that bad about like forgetting it because it's going to be their turn soon instead of like waiting for everyone to do five turns like short turns are amazing um so another thing to make um your turn shorter is to draw cards at the end of your turn instead Mm. of the beginning because if you draw at the beginning that thing you were thinking about ever since you ended your last turn you might just be like oh I'm not gonna do that thing I thought about for all that time I'm gonna do something new and oh no I have to think about it or maybe I'm gonna try to start doing that but then I'm gonna take it back because actually my first plan was the best plan if you just make them draw cards at the end they can think about that while other players are playing
1: yeah for sure I'd say anything that's in your game that a player does that doesn't necessarily affect other players, put that at the end. That way the other players can be taking their turns while that one player is still finished. I, I go back to Scythe. You know, you have that bottom board action, that only affects you, has nothing to do with anybody else. And so like, once I start on that bottom board, the next player can go ahead and go, and I can still figure out, okay, did I want to do this upgrade or that? And I can still think through that while they're taking their turn, they're moving around, they're doing whatever, and it speeds the game up and it lightens my, my mental you know, gymnastics that I have to play during my turn. It's like, okay, I'm not sure what I'm going to do on my bottom board, but uh, I'm going to do this on my top board, and now it's your turn, and I'm going to figure this out. And that's, that's so much better than like me sitting there and everybody just waiting and waiting and waiting.
2: Yeah, and by the time you figure out what you're going to do on your bottom board, maybe the other person has already gone, and maybe it's almost your turn again.
1: That's true. That's a very, very good point. All right, another thing I feel like would lighten the load cognitively is to lessen the math. And this is something Dan Peterson was on the show a while back talking about, Just getting rid of math and making just making a game have less math in it. What are some ways you've found in your games to reduce the math or get rid of it and to kind of lighten the game up?
2: Okay, so... We all have, like, these formulas for, like, how many, like, cards you put out with setup and stuff. But instead of putting out the formulas, like, say, like, oh, it's number of players plus two. Like, that's simple math. But it still, it takes time to actually do, to think about, like, oh, okay, who's playing? Like, if it just put out, like, oh, okay, for two players, do four. For three players, do five. Four players, do six. Like, that just makes it so clear and easy. And there's also less words. So, like, you don't have to read as much. Like, it's just... Okay, you understand right there. Um, and another thing is that um, you never want people to like have to count. Mm-hmm. Like I know counting isn't really math, but um, the typical player can only count like like see things and count up to five. So you never want to like have it be like, oh, the trigger for this is when 18 things gets to this place, <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, between my turn every turn I'm going to count them yeah. and see how many there are. But like, if the trigger is like, oh, four things get here, like you can you can just look, see four, you don't have to count because like counting is fun. Like it just takes time, and it's like, okay, I can see three, I can see four, but I can't see eighteen.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'd say if you are gonna use the whole eighteen thing, either have a place on the board where you're adding eighteen things to it, so eighteen tokens or something like that, and that way you can tell how close you are to the end of the game. You can look, and go, okay, we're four spots away because every you know token has its own spot. Or you do the opposite of that, and once there's no more tokens left, and so like every time you know this happens, you take a token and maybe you discard something like that, and so you're you're seeing, it's almost like a countdown to get to the end game. But you mm-hmm. don't have to count. All you have to do is look. Okay, okay, there's tokens. Okay, the game's not over. Oh, there's no tokens. The game's over. You know, it's it's just uh, that simple.
2: Yeah. and Along the same lines, like uh, you want to like highlight things on like the the board yeah. or the, like if there's an important thing. Like, don't make players remember, like, like, oh, okay, the trigger is when people get to 25 and I just have to remember the number 25. Oh, when just mark on the board, like, make the 25 a different color, do something. Like, put a bunch of, like, helper things. Like, you can even put a word there. Like, you know, um, just make it super easy because no one really wants to remember because if you have to remember, people are going to inevitably forget and then they're going to feel bad and they're going to be like, oh, okay, do we end – now do we all take another turn like what do we do now and then the game's going to get even longer while you discuss oh what are you going to do because you missed the trigger so if you have triggers just have them on the board i mean why not it'll only take up like a little bit of space for like listing everything you need to remember and if it doesn't take up a little bit of space maybe there's too much there Mm, like do you need 10 end game triggers or can you deal with like three
1: yeah, that's a great point. I love putting information on the board. Uh one, it keeps people from having to go back to the rule book, which slows everything down. Uh but also it limits like let's say you have a new player and you know they're trying to figure out like okay, what actions can I do? It's nice to have a reference card or something like that that like lists their actions, also so they don't look at you know the person who's played lot and go, "Hey, can I do this?" and kind of tip their hand of like what their strategy is about to be for the next turn or two. You know they can just kind of look down at the board and go, "Ah, yes, okay, I can do this," and then I can do that. All right cool, and it just like it lightens the game up and you don't have to remember as much, and you also don't have to uh have to let people know what you're thinking, which I feel like is another good way to do things. All right. So, any other ways to reduce math, or just lighten the game, or anything? Actually, Martin, think about it. Um, Dan Peterson he talked about using colors. So instead of using numbers, use color matching, and use like different ways to uh, to do that, as opposed to having counting, or you know, as opposed to thinking, okay, I can only move three spaces. You know, instead of going, okay, I can move to the next blue space, and it just makes the the game kind of speed up. Anything else like that you found in your your own games that kind of sped things up by eliminating other mechanisms or other ways of doing things?
2: So along the color line, like if you have icons, have all of that icon be the same color. Yeah. So that players know, like, oh okay, if they see the icon, it's color. Like, it just makes your brain work better if there's an icon with the color. Um and you also want to do uh, colorblind friendly components. Um it's great for colorblind people, but um everyone just benefits from having things be colorblind. Like you don't want somebody to be looking at the board and just be staring at it trying to figure out, is that the black player or is that the dark blue player?
1: Yeah.
2: Yep. Like, what color is that? Like, especially if, like, not everyone has, like, really good lighting. And it's, like, that's not fun to try to figure out, like, oh, am I getting too old to play this game because, like, red and pink look the same? <laughs> like, just just get rid of all that. Like, make it just colorblind friendly so that, like, even if, like, multi colors we can, we can figure out the differences between them and it'll just, like, that'll be something that nobody even thinks about so it won't come up again.
1: Yeah, for sure. Another thing I've seen as far as color and kind of speeding things up is using color in the rule book. I think it was a queen game. I can't remember which company, but they had like every section of the rule book. whenever it changed. So whenever you were going into the combat section, it had like a red background to it. And so like if you were playing the game you're like, oh, what's that? What's that rule for combat? You just go find the red section. It's like, oh, OK, all the combat rules are here. All the movement rules are green. Mm. All the trading rules are blue. And so you you didn't have to wonder where it is. And you knew every rule you needed for that phase of the game. Was right there in that specific color, and that it sped up the the, the learning of the rules. Sped up going back and, and uh, re looking at the rules, so to speak. So I think that's another cool way to do things. Uh, any other any other ways to lighten a game?
2: Uh, so really good consistent graphic design. Okay, right. mm-hmm. you want to make sure that two similar icons, like uh, that, they don't do different things. Like you don't want two similar icons. You want somebody to be able to look at an icon and know what it is. So that means like even if the icon is on a light or dark background, the icon should look identical. You don't wanna like make it different just so it shows up better. You want it just to show up really, really well. Like, because um, if you're trying to figure out what to do on Android and you're like, what is this icon? Like you're not actually doing strategy. You're trying to like figure out if you can identify icons. So having the same icons for the same effect, like regardless of where it is, it just works out really well especially if you're using, like, icons for phases. Like, so if you're in a certain phase of the game and you look at your cards, you're like, oh, okay, I can only play these two cards, so I'm not going to think about the other ones. I'm just going to think about the ones that matter right now. And giving cues to the player about this, like, just allow them to, like, limit their vision as much as possible.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think another good way to use icons potentially is kind of in the form of keywords or maybe even just using keywords. So if you find that a lot of your cards have the exact same text, you know, they do the same things, the actions are the same, just use keywords use or use an icon the, to kind of speed up the game. And so players don't draw a card and feel like they have to mm-hmm. read uh, the entire thing. It's like, oh, I didn't have to read this, I already knew what it. Okay, I already, why don't they just use an icon? Well, just use an icon instead, right? Uh, <laughs> yes,
2: exactly. Yeah. And you also don't want players to be like reading a bunch on their turn either. Yeah. Like cards, if you... You don't need a paragraph of text okay you if you can get like one sentence or one phrase that is way better than a paragraph because it just you you take it in better it's just a lot faster because like just imagine like picking that game up in like two months if you have to read through a whole paragraph you did not remember that paragraph but if you have to read like four words you might remember what those four words meant
1: yeah, for sure. I think another way uh, to kind of lighten the load of a card is make sure anything that's not important, like flavor text or something like that, is in italics. Or it's in some kind of thing where mm-hmm. players that don't care can just disregard it and not feel like they have to read it. Or you because know, I've, I've had times where I've read the card and I got down and I was like, wait, oh, this is oh I'm just reading the flavor text. Never mind. You know, this is not important for my turn. It's not important for the action. Mm-hmm. It just kind of brings out the theme. And so make sure the, the flavor text or the unnecessary stuff is very obvious. That way players can kind of not have to worry about it
2: along the lines of unnecessary stuff, um, you don't want to use, like, a lot of new words for common items. Okay, Uh, you might think it's, like, super thematic, like, in your uh, seafaring pirate game to call the dice boats, but a new person will be, like, okay, these are boats, but what, are there other boats? Are all dice boats? Are these dice boats? Like, you don't want to, like, add in, like, possible confusion. Like, you could just call them dice, and that'll be fine. Like, yeah. You can say, like, the dice are the player's boats, But then if you keep on referring to them as dice, like players will just, they know what dice are.
1: Right. I it th- just
2: makes everything easier.
1: Yeah, I think you have to be careful when you're trying to bring the theme of a game out in the rule book. I think that's dangerous. I've seen a lot mm-hmm. of people do that, you know, and they've kind of made the rule book this really interesting, uh, almost like a comic book, or they use these weird fonts, or they kind of, they try to be funny, you know, they try to inject all this humor. And I've I've read things, I was like, wait, oh, that's not a rule. Okay, that's just the designer telling a joke okay cool and so like, it's like why like, it's not necessary and so you got to be careful like what thematic stuff you're doing in your rules because it might actually be slowing the game down it might be confusing people more than it's actually bringing the theme of the game alive and so something to think about
2: mm-hmm. well along those same lines like if you are not great at writing rules like well even if you are you should always get an editor because oh. editors will find the things that, like, because you wrote it, you won't be able to find, and also a lot of board game editors, they know the correct way to, like, um, tell people how to do things, like, the correct way to learn something, so they might put things in different orders, but They'll do that because it's just easier to learn. It's better that way.
1: Yeah, for sure. This is something i just experienced this past week um, You know, with my space game. The rule book, I was, fin- I was finished with the rule book, and so I started putting out to get some feedback from other people. And my friend Joe, and Joe's an avid listener, so Joe, I really appreciate you being a listener and part of the community. I sent it over to him, and he is very experienced in the industry with rule books. And he took uh, – it was an 11-page document – and by the time he got done with it, it was at nine pages. And I was like, Joe, you like you eliminated two full pages. That's a lot, that's a huge percentage of words that he mm-hmm. eliminated. And because I would just over explain. I would I would use three sentences to explain something that he would use one. You know, and I'm a pretty decent writer. Like I've written a lot, I've edited a lot, but I needed somebody to go in after me, you know, who didn't know the game as well, but who knew how to write things so it would be much more understandable without being wordy, without being you know, kind of too verbose, that kind of thing. And so I cannot recommend that what you just Said enough. Find people that aren't necessarily close to your game, but just who know how to write, they know how to edit, who can help you out with this. It'll it'll save you so much time, uh, so much time for you, and so much time for your your players trying to learn the game in the future.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like even if you're not to the blind play testing stage, I've been to the stage where I'm just like I send out the rules to some of my friends, and then I ask them questions about the rules, yeah. and if they answer appropriately, like okay, that's great, they understood it, but if they don't answer right, it's like, oh, okay, I did not under, I did not write that well enough. I need to get back to it and like actually make sure the rules are really great. And this also saves you blind playtesting time yep. because if you know that at least some of the rules are understandable by just reading the rules, that's a lot better than actually sitting somebody down and like putting out all the components and then realizing that your rules are very terrible and you can't actually play a game with them.
1: Yeah. And if you're making a light game, again, like we talked about earlier, the rules are a big part of that being light of like mm-hmm. kind of that uh, category of things. Another thing I, I didn't, you always have to be aware other people learn things differently than you. And it's so difficult to put yourself in other people's shoes for that kind of stuff because that's not how our brains work. Like my brain learns things a certain way and it's hard for me to think about how other people are learning. And so one other thing with my rule book recently is I got a message from a guy who said, hey, I need I need pictures. Like, I need pictures of the components because I just had a big list. You know, there's these dice, there's these cards, that kind of thing. And he said, well, no, no, like, show me what this card looks like because I like to learn games in bed before I go to sleep and then try to play it the next day. I was like, oh, okay, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about somebody having the rule book but not the game in front of them Right. To be able to mm-hmm. look and go, okay, this is that card. This is that component. Like, no, no, they, he, he just wanted to sit in bed and kind of go through the rules and like see it in his head. I'm like, okay, that's very different. And so I had to go back and like put a big components list that had all pictures of every card and all the dice and all the board, all that stuff, just because that's how he learns. And that kind of lightened the game up for him. He didn't have to think and figure things out. He could just, oh, there's the picture. There it is right there. And so it just made the game, uh, the rule book overall better.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and another thing you can do for a rule book is a quick start guide to, like, yeah. the back of it, yep. um, because, like, okay, maybe somebody knows how to play, but they don't want to read an entire rule book. give them a quick start guide, just let them, like, go through, like, oh, okay, this is how to set up, this is how to play. They have a reference card. They can just do that by reading one page of Quick Start and a reference card instead of reading like a 10-page document.
1: Yeah, for sure. Especially, you know, you had not played in a year. You, you kind of remember how to play, but not quite. Like the Quick Start really, gosh, it goes so much. It uh, helps you out so far there. And one thing I love when, when publishers do this is they have the rule book and then they have, you know, that extra sheet and it's like a card stock thing and it's kind of separate. And so I don't have to go find it. It's just right there in the in the box. I just I love when, when publishers do that. All right, let's talk about scoring. What are some ways you could lighten up your game and speed up the scoring?
2: So instead of making people, like, add up a bunch of money, add up a bunch of things, maybe do, like, a a trigger, whoever has the most buildings made, like, something that's, like, super easy to count versus, like, figuring out, like, a mathematical formula. Like, oh, it's the number of buildings uh, multiplied by, like, the number of high-level buildings minus this. Like, just make it super, super simple, uh, maybe have tiebreakers of some sort, but make the tiebreakers, like, you just have to look over, like, at whatever's in front of somebody, and then you
1: know. Yeah, for sure. And then maybe also deciding what kind of game you want to make. Uh, Seven Wonders is great. You know, it's one of the greatest games of all time, at least based on the rankings. But, man, the scoring, I feel like, takes almost as much as the whole game. And and so, but they decided, hey, this is the game that we want to make. And so I think you need to really be upfront about, you know, if, if your scoring's going to take a long time. Then make sure that's okay. Make sure players make sure the game is worth it, right? And also make sure you add some kind of like scoring pad in the box to make Mm -hmm. it easier, right? So that you can just kind of write down for each category or or however your game uh, works. I think that's another thing just to kind of keep in mind. All right, any other ideas you have? Anything else you kind of wrote down in your notes as far as lightening a game or anything like that?
2: So just like as an overall thing, if you're trying to lighten the game, don't add things. Take them away. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Good. Like, see if you can take away, like, maybe a deck of cards or a mechanic or something and see how the game plays. And usually when I take away things, the game is just more streamlined. It's better. It's easier to bring up. Like, um, just having, like, a a simpler experience is usually better. And, like, you could always have, like, a beginner mode to the game. Like, make something that, like, okay, if you want the game to be five rounds, make the beginner mode be, like, three rounds. Uh, make some beginner mode that like oh, okay, you play with all the components except for the dice like simplify some aspect of it um, so that you know you can have a mode where you can you can learn most of it. but then like you can play again and you can add more and do the learning in kind of two or three even sessions.
1: Yeah, for sure. Another thing I've seen some games do is they'll have, especially a game with like asymmetrical factions or, you know, different uh, player abilities, things like that. They'll have, you know, the front side has all these abilities and everybody's different, but on the back side, everybody's the same. And so if you want to do like a Mm -hmm. learning game, you know, and not have all this extra stuff going on, these extra rules, extra things to think about, is you can lighten the load of the game by just kind of making everybody the same for that first go-round. Like, oh, okay, now I understand how the basic game works. Now let's add in these really interesting special abilities that are going to change things. And so that's another way you can kind of lighten your game. And now a lot of gamers, they, they don't care. They're like, no, we're going straight to the asymmetry. But it's helpful mm-hmm. just in case, you know, you do have those people who are like, no, I'm going to play this with my family. And so let's do the easier version, the, the basic version, normal version, whatever you want to call it, uh, first. And then when we play again, we can kind of add all the extra bells and whistles.
2: Yeah, and then that also adds your playability because yeah. you can play and master it at the easy version. And then you can, oh, okay, let's add in more stuff. It's like an expansion that just came with it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, Carla, I really appreciate your time and your insight and ideas on this. Do you have any closing advice, closing thoughts for somebody working on a light game or, or just trying to lighten their game?
2: Um, yeah, as I said, like, try to take away as much as possible. Add in reference cards always. I mean, why not reference cards? Yeah. Just do it. Um, if in doubt, reach out for people – Um, that know what they're doing, like graphics designers, editors, get somebody else to look at it and try to understand what you're trying to explain without you actually having to explain it. Um, Because, you know, there's a bunch of rules that I've tried to add to my games where if I can't explain it right, I'll just take them out because the game is just better that way. Well, especially since no one can figure out that rule I was trying to write anyway. Um, But yeah, don't ever feel bad about like just being like, okay, I can't explain this, therefore it's not a thing anymore. It just doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's something we, we struggle with in board games that other mediums don't deal with. It's not that it's not being able to explain a rule. It's being able to explain a rule through a rule book. And that's very different. Like the written word mm-hmm. is so different than if I was just sitting at the table saying, hey, this is how this mechanism works. It can be hard to explain something like that in, in writing. And so, yeah, it's, that's definitely something to keep in mind. Well, Carla, you got a game on Kickstarter right now, so tell me about it.
2: So the game is Dreams of Tomorrow. Um, in the game, you're a dream engineer, and you're sending dreams into the past to change your present because not everything went as it was supposed to. So you, you want to, like, fix up your situation a little bit. Um, the game is a set collection game that has shifting action spaces, um, and some people would call this a rondelle. Um, I've learned that not everyone knows the word rondelle as you know, set collection as well. Um, I was actually blind playtesting this, and somebody was reading it, and they're like, okay, set collection. We are going to make a set. What is the set? <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, they haven't heard that term mm-hmm. before. That's not a commonly known term. So just so you know, just because you think a mechanic is, like, known, or, like, press your luck. I said the word press your luck to um, – my mother-in-law, and I had to, like, explain thoroughly why a game wasn't pressure Luck, even though it had luck in it. Like, <laughs> they both had the same word, and she's like, yeah, you roll dice, Press Your Luck. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's not, that's not how that works. Yeah. Um, so, yes, don't add terms just because you know them, right. and all your gamer friends do. But, yeah, um, I'm really excited about this game because I've played games with rondelles. There's actually not, like, too many rondelle games, Um, but this one, you can um, move the rondelle around so that it's not just static. Um, It's made up of four cards that have two action spaces on them each, and maybe on your turn, if you have the right dreams, you have to acquire dreams into your dream catcher, and then the purpose of what you're doing is you want to put them into a dream sequence. So you slowly weave your dreams into a dream sequence one at a time, but when dreams are not in your dream catcher, you can only use their abilities if they're at the end of the dream sequence. So you have to make sure that you don't, you know, use that ability that you really like and then hide it away so you can't get it again. But these abilities, like, you can flip cards in the roundel. You can move cards around on the roundel. You can change your direction so you can, like, ping pong between the, the spots that you really want if you want those. Um. So, yeah, we're very coming cool. to Kickstarter soon.
1: Yeah, very cool. And, like, player count and time and all that stuff.
2: Oh, yeah, that's very important, actually. So um, this game is for one to six players. It plays in about 45 minutes. Um, one of the really cool things about the game also is that there's two modes of play, like I said before. Um, so there's the pleasant night mode, which is like the more beginner-ish mode, where only the players are changing up the rondel. But we have the troubled night mode as well, where you bring in the nightmare that I'm pretty proud of because I managed to put a pun in a game that actually works.
1: You did because this is this is a uh, horse, right? Because I remember the first time we talked about this, I thought it was a nightmare, like like a little guy with a monocle and like the Monopoly guy. He's the mayor of the nightmare. I don't know, but this is actually like a like an evil horse kind of thing in it.
2: Yes, it is. So <laughs> it is um, a little horse that will wreck your day, basically. <laughs> so so whenever it's the nightmare's turn, the nightmare it could move around the rondelle in a way that you can't anticipate it could steal your resources it could clear all the dreams from the dream market so that like the one that you were going after and going to get on your next turn actually that's in the discard pile now and you just have to deal with that so yeah it adds a bit of chaos um... i really like the nightmare because i try to plan ahead and then the nightmare goes and then i'm like okay well, I'm going to do something else now. Um, so it is um, pretty light because um, you just move on the rondelle. You take the action on the spot you go on. So even though the nightmare can ruin your day a little, you still just go into your actions So turn there pretty quick.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now, this is a game I got to play, uh, an earlier version at Dice Tower Con, over the summer, back before you had this really cool theme added to it. And it was (laughs) a really interesting game, a a lot of fun. It's a game that allows you to feel clever, right? Because you can manipulate that rondelle and move things around and kind of mess with your opponent some. But it makes you, you know, when you pull off a really cool combo, you feel smart. And and you can play the game, and and it's super quick. And so, yeah, the the art is beautiful, and it just looks like a really uh, cool game. And so I hope it uh, goes really well. It's on Kickstarter right now if you can hear this and it's inside uh what's what's your dates? october
2: um it is october 15th to november 8th
1: there you go if it's inside those dates check that game out i highly recommend it well carla i really appreciate your time appreciate your insight on all this good luck with your company and your your game and your kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now
2: well thank you it was so fun being on again
0: thanks for listening